name there in the fourth chapter, verse 12. There is no other name by which you know, a sinner can be saved except by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, question number six uh, it was, what could the Jewish leadership not deny? You know, they're not liking what the apostles are doing, but there's one thing they admitted. We cannot deny what? The miracle. And, he said, and it was a noteworthy one. We kind of talked a little bit about you know, the uniqueness of that particular miracle. Last question from you know, lesson four, question eight. What was the apostles' answer to their threats? You know, here you've got in chapter four, you know, they're threatening the apostles. This is Peter and John. You know, so what was Peter and John's answer to the council's threats to them? Right. You know, we, we cannot step, stop talking and preaching and teaching about what we've seen and what we have heard. And so that goes right along the importance of the, of the fact of the truth of how they are eyewitnesses of everything that they are declaring and proclaiming concerning Jesus Christ. And so, in a quick way, chapter 4 covers the idea you have the lame uh, from birth man being healed at a temple gate. Peter then begins preaching boldly in the resurrection of Christ and repentance. And then you have this opposition, uh, particularly being led by the sect of the Sadducees. And the key thing that they're really upset about is the fact that they are preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection at all of any kind. And so this you know, you know, definitely would be something very upsetting to them. But in, in the inquiry that you see there in chapter 4, it does touch on the idea how impressed, how impressed the council of Sanhedrin were of the confidence of Peter and John as they stood there in this very intimidating situation. And you know, just for a moment, very quickly, think about the idea of Peter's remorse. You know, back in, for example, Luke's account, Luke 22, you know, he's denied the Lord three times, just like Jesus said you know, it would happen. And then he is filled with remorse, you know, and he runs off weeping about what he has done. And, but now you see a totally different man from that. And how Peter took that remorse of his, and I would suggest to you, it was a godly sorrow that led to repentance. And so it tra- that was transformed into the boldness that we see here in these early chapters of Acts. And that he was convinced you know, without question that Jesus is the Lord and that he is the Savior of the world. And so he is boldly standing before this council, no matter what their threats were. And he declares to them the truth about Jesus Christ. Uh, I would suggest also in, in chapter 4, uh, you know, the point is they just don't want Jesus being preached. You know, that's the bottom line. They don't want them talking about Jesus. They don't want to mention his name. And so basically that's what they're threatening. That's what they're saying. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't teach. Don't preach about Jesus Christ. And what that does, that reveals to you and me the hearts of the opposition. It's really, you know, when you take the time to slow down and think about what they're doing and what they're saying 
and the motives of the reaction, it really reveals the character of this leadership. And Jesus says, you will know a tree by what? By its fruit. And we are knowing what kind of trees these Sadducees are by the fruit that they are bearing. And so they continue to threaten them and they basically tell them, don't do what you've been told to do. You know, you think about the apostles, the very word means they're chosen and they're chosen to sent to be and they're sent out. And and they're being so don't do what you've been chosen to do. Don't do what what uh, you've been sent out to do. And so Peter and John's faith is being tested here. And the test is who are they going to obey? Who are they going to listen to? Is going to are they listening to their father in heaven? Are, are they going to listen to their Lord in heaven? Or are they going to listen to these rulers? You know, in their city and in, in among themselves. And you think about it, what, based upon the history of this leadership, of this particular Sanhedrin, what were these wicked rulers capable of doing? Murdering. Peter and John know that. They know this is the same Sanhedrin yeah, that you know, ramrodded you know, you know, through those you know, trials in the night and, and presented their case to Pilate and basically kind of forced Pilate's hand. Pilate was accountable as well. But that's the same, that's the same men here. And so you begin to see, okay, that, that would be in their minds and in their heart. And so they're being tested. Who are they going to listen to? Who are they going to obey? But they are totally convinced of who Jesus is, willing to risk their life, lay it down you know, in death, because they know who is Lord. And they know who is the Son of God. And so, you know, they're, they're let go. And very quickly, also, I wanted to kind of sum up the response. Get this move forward here. Get the response of Peter and John after they've been threatened and then let go this first time. And you think about you know, what, what's going on here. This is kind of the first public or you know, initial persecution that's against Jesus after you know, Jesus has, has ascended. It is the first kind of persecution against the gospel, the spreading of the good news of Jesus. And it's the beginning of the persecution against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the response? But in summation, what you see in, in this last little section is, first of all, you know, they went, they went to their brethren. You know, who did they go to? You know, when, when they're let go and, and they've been threatened, they assembled with their own. And now uh, that would have included the apostles and that may have included a larger number of disciples as well. But that's who they went to. They went to their spiritual family and together what they did, they praised God. They've just been threatened. They've been told, don't do what Jesus told you to do. And and the first thing to do, let's, let's meet with our brethren and let's praise God for what's just happened. And in the course of, of this, in verses 23 through 31 of the fourth chapter, so Acts chapter 4, verse you know, uh, 23 through the one is this particular section. One of the things that comes out in this praise is that they confess that what had happened, 
they recognized was exactly what God said would happen. And they go back to Psalm 2. And you see that in verse 25 and 26, where they speak of how the Spirit spoke through David and said and asked the question, why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, or in other words, Jehovah, against Jehovah, and against his Christ, against his Messiah, against his anointed one. And so they recognize here in this praise that Jesus is God's anointed one. And what's happening is exactly what God said would happen centuries before Jesus even died. But then, to me, what you see, you just see the heart and the sincerity and the, uh, the genuineness of their faith and their commitment and allegiance to Christ is after praising God and acknowledging this truth... What do they ask for? Boldness. Yes. They did not ask for deliverance. Do you find that interesting? They did not ask for the threats to stop. They did not ask for these rulers to be removed. They simply asked for boldness to continue to do the work, to have the confidence to keep on speaking What they had seen and what they had heard and God to continue to work through them by confirming that proclamation with ongoing signs and miracles as they face this threat. That's what they asked for. Confidence, boldness to do the job that they were chosen and sent to do no matter what they're up against. There's a lesson in that for us, is there not, even today. We may not be in the exact exact situation of persecution that they are in, but there is a lesson in this that our prayers, yes, there's nothing wrong to ask for deliverance. And many times God's people did throughout history, Old Testament and New Testament. But the greater call for us today is not simply to be delivered from circumstances, but rather as people who have committed an allegiance to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is that we be clothed with God's boldness and confidence to stand up for Jesus, no matter what. And as this section closes, God heard the prayer, God answered the prayer, and God gave them the assurance they needed. Talks about how, you know, he says, you know, you know that plate, the, where they were, where they were gathered, it shook. So you got the shaking of, of the facility, and then this uh, expression of them being filled with the Spirit so they would speak the Word of God. And now they've already been baptized with the Spirit, so this is not a reenactment of that, but there is in some way God answering their request, and God gives them what they need to do what's ahead of them. So that's a quick, quick summation of what we were trying to finish up last week. Anybody want to add anything from that section? Okay, Sam. It, real quick, it just seems like, you know, they... Uh, prayed and they were wanting boldness and we typically think of these signs that you're talking about uh being for everybody else but in this case it seems like they were for them 
to right. give them boldness and encouragement. Yes. So it's it, it, it seems a little different. And like you said, the place was shaken, so they were able to know God heard us. Yes. Mm-hmm. Good point. Anyone else? Mitch over here. John, okay. I believe it's in the last chapter of uh, the Gospel of John. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And three times he said, well, you know that I do. Then he, Jesus said, well, then feed my sheep. You know, if, if you really want to, you know, the agape love, a sacrificial love, mm-hmm. if you want to do something good for me, what you need yeah. to do is feed my sheep. And we see that's exactly what Peter's doing. Yes, that's a good point. Okay, Mitch. Just real quick to add on to that, uh, the, Peter's sermons both times, what he's asking the Jews to do is something he himself is being an example of here, where before he made the wrong decision to deny Jesus, and he's repented of that, changed, and now he's making a new decision. And that's basically what he's asking them to do as well. Yeah. Good application. Appreciate that. Anyone else? Okay, we're going to move on, uh, along in our next section. And the next, you know, today's lesson actually picks up at chapter 4, verse 32, and, and goes through the fifth chapter. Uh, selected three questions from the question seats very, uh, very quickly for us to just to answer. Uh, question two, who was witnessing Jesus' resurrection with great power? The apostles. And so that, you know, you know, this is the acts of the apostles or some of the acts of some of the apostles. And so, you know, here, you know, that's the ongoing work. They're testifying uh, concerning Christ, concerning the resurrection, just as they had been chosen to do. And you think about uh, that's what Jesus said would happen back in the Gospel of John when he talked about he will pray to the Father to send the comforter, the helper, helper, and one of the things that the helper would do would, would help them to testify concerning the truth. Uh, question four, what did Ananias' and Sapphira's death instill in the church? Fear. And so there was a positive uh, blessing that grew out of that sad story. Uh, uh, question eight. What did the high priest accuse the apostles of doing in chapter five? What are they doing? Basically, they're doing what they're told not to do. <laughs> they're being told, you know, they're, so they're accused, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're preaching Jesus. You're continuing to fill, fill the city with the, you know, with the name of Jesus. That's what they, you know, they told them not to do back, you know, back in chapter uh, uh, four. And here, as some time lapse has occurred, they're still doing that. And as a result, and this, this is kind of the, the, the kind of the bigger blow. Okay, you're preaching Jesus, which we told you not to do. And as a result, you know, you, you're, he says, you're intending to bring what on us? The blood of Jesus. Were they? Yes. They were at fault. Go back to what the point Mitch. You know, they need to be convicted of what they've done. Yes, the blood of Jesus was on them. And so that was just, you know, that came with telling the truth about the story of Jesus. And they, they knew their part in that story. So let's, let's kind of you know, just talk, start talking about the, the text itself. In this last paragraph of chapter 4, you've got you know, the church in Jerusalem is diligently laboring together in peace. 
And so you have this one-mindedness in heart and in soul. And so this atmosphere, this attitude is what basically prevailed in this congregation of believers in spite of the beginning of opposition, in spite of the beginning of persecution, this is the predominant attitude and atmosphere of the church in Jerusalem in those early days, months, and years. And the reason why, one, the apostles. You know, you have their ongoing, very powerful testimony at at work. Secondly, you've got this prevailing, abundant grace that is permeating among them. And I think that phrase implies two things. I think it implies God's grace at work. Yeah, that is a result of Christ and His gospel. But out of, the, out of God's grace that they are receiving, there is a grace that's being extended among themselves. So you have this abundant grace that is prevailing among the membership at Jerusalem. And it's out of that grace that you see a very practical illustration of that. The favor, unmerited favor, that's being shared among themselves. But I would also suggest with those two, two first two points is this, that all of this implies that the faith of these believers was an obedient faith. Because of the apostles' teaching and because of grace at work, you know, you've got faith is all very much alive. And they're adhering to the way of Christ. Now, if you think about it, at this point still, you know, at this point in the, in the divine account of, of the Lord's church, you know, what we have here is in Jerusalem right now still, the apostles are the only ones who have special power you know, in the sense of the miraculous things that they're doing in the proclamation of the gospel and in the confirmation of that gospel. At this point, it's still just the apostles who are doing that. And so I think that's the point. The ongoing apostolic testimony is being done with power. And that's going on. But what one of the, the, the blessings that's growing out of this is this sacrificial generosity. And that's going to grow out of this prevailing grace. It's going to grow out of the Christian's love for the Lord and the love for one another because they've got this deep spiritual bond that's existent. And it's going to be seen. It's going to be in very practical day-to-day kind of illustrations when there is abundant grace and love among the believers, you know, there's going to be a sharing with one another but what's being described here is not, it is not communal socialism. The Lord it was not requiring communal socialism. That is the idea of the state requiring and taking proper property in order to disperse among everybody. That's not what's going on here. To suggest that, to, to suggest that's what's going on really lessens the real power that's going on. To turn this into some you know, communal socialism, it takes away from the allegiance and the hearts of these believers. The power of this united care that's growing out of pure willingness and pure motives of people who have been transformed by the Son of God. 
That's where the real power is. Jesus changes us when we listen and follow him truly and completely. And so it is a choice of all the saved in Jerusalem at that time. It is their choice to share unselfishly their property and to share unselfishly their possessions, to meet whatever the need was among them. And you think about it, this is amazing because you know, at this point, you know, we already know based you know, uh, uh, in, 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 early on in chapter 4, you know, where it talks about the number, the increasing number, you know, at least at the beginning of chapter 4, the number had gotten to how many men? 5,000 men at that point is the number of, of men who were disciples of Jesus Christ. That's not the whole number. But you think about this growing number of discipleship and the prevailing attitude and atmosphere is this one-mindedness, is this prevailing grace, is this love, where yes, they willingly and lovingly and humbly are sharing with each other. That's amazing. This, this is not something the apostles were mandating this was, this was something coming from their own willing hearts because Jesus changed them. And you think, you know, how could that happen? Well, I think you know, the, poss- the possible reason is, one, is where, are there, where is their treasures? Where is the, where's the treasure of these disciples? It, it's heaven, Right. It's no, it's no longer earthly things, just like what Jesus taught back, you know, back in the Gospel of Matthew, where you know, he taught in the sermon, to lay up your treasures where? Well, in heaven and not on earth. And Paul later on writes to Timothy about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you know, how those who are blessed with earthly gains and how you know, they are to be rich in their giving and so, do, and so doing, you know, they lay up heavenly treasures. And so I think that's what il- this illiterate, why, why, why is this going on? It was because this earth was not their home anymore. Their home was with the Lord now. And so, yes, they were very willing to just you know, share whatever they had. Secondly, also, I think they had an understanding of a changed relationship. The fact that they were truly part of something amazing they're, they're part of something wonderful. They're part of something that is so much bigger than themselves. And that is they are part of God's family. As John writes in 1 John chapter 4, you know, you know, the blessedness of God's, of the Father's love that he has called us his children. That truly through a spiritual adoption in Christ, through Christ, we become Children of God. God adopts us and makes us his own. And so these new Christians understood that. They understood the idea of that they now have this amazing family in the Lord, with the Lord. And so as they looked at each other, and once again, they're day by day. Acts 2.47, what does it say? Day by day, what's happening? Yes. Day by day, you know, they're being added to the number, being added to the church, those who are being saved. And so this number is increasing. 
you know, and of course you think, you know, you're not going to know absolutely everybody personally or at least intimately, but they recognize that we are all part of this amazing family of God. But the focus, yeah, Diane over here, Jason, yeah, but the focus in this, the idea of sharing, it was, it's the sharing among those among themselves. And you see that in verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. So that's the focus here. Diane. Am I wrong in assuming too that the people that were there on Pentecost were caught up in all of this and many of them had not gone home and that a lot of this was being shared with them because they were caught there with nothing. Okay. That's my understanding. That, that, that plays into it. You know, we don't know that definitively, but I think that's a reasonable, logical suggestion to consider the fact that the, this number that's here in Jerusalem, those who have traveled because of the Pentecost and then being converted, and they end up staying. Because it talks in chapter 2 how they continued steadfastly in all these things with the apostles. And so that would present a need... Where some of these, you know, think about, okay, dwelling and food, you know, know, their jobs aren't right here. And so all of that very much uh, could be playing into this from Acts 2 onward. Bruce right here. Okay, then then Leanne. Well, it's in stark contrast to what the Corinthians were experiencing in that here here were people because of love and the grace that they had received and did not have a need, who saw their brethren with a need. Mm-hmm. And so it was not a matter of, as you said, any social thing. It was a matter of, of love. If I see my brother hurting, I hurt. If I see my brother in need, uh, you know, like James says, it does me no good to say, well, I hope you get something to eat. It takes mm-hmm. an active faith and an active love uh, to see that need and to share. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Leanne. Um, I got a, a bit of a personal thing. Um, back when they said about the Macedonians, about the, how they gave of mm-hmm. the poor means or whatever, um, when I was really, really sick and I was in the hospital uh, for something that happened to me, uh, there was a congregation in Rome that was being persecuted at the time, and they they took up all their money and they bought me something that was extremely expensive at the time. But that I found out later that they didn't have a church building or anything to meet into, so I sold what they had and I gave them the money for a church building or some some something for them because they were going through enormous persecution at the time and I was, this this warms my heart because it makes me think of of them and other people who when you least expect it there will be somebody who who loves you so much that they're willing to give their last penny for you and it, it makes you love them for the rest of your life. So I have brethren here, but I also have brethren around the world who I love and I adore and who I've supported throughout the years privately. And I can truly say I have an, a world full of family and friends and loved ones who, who truly love me and 
like these people took care of them, I will always take care of them because they always take care of me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So the last point, like I say, what we're going to touch on here as we, as we try to get very quickly into uh, chapter 5 is, is also what you're seeing in this paragraph that describes kind of the, the overall uh, tenor of the work that is being done you know, you know, by, by the membership of the church in Jerusalem is this idea of the oversight of the apostles. And, and you see that primarily kind of being brought out in verse 35 and 37. Uh, where it talks about how, okay, in regard to their sharing, you know, they would come and they would lay, lay the proceeds, whatever that was, they'd come and present it to the apostles, lay them at the apostles' feet, and then the apostles then would distribute, you know, you know, you know those funds, those gifts as any had need. And so, so yeah, there's two things I think you, you can draw from the implication there. One is there is this uh, common collection that's going on. And so, another way we would say that, that so there is, there is a sense, a treasury. And so there's this common collection that the membership is presenting and they're, and they're laying at the apostles' feet. And then out of that collection, out of that treasury, that would then be dispersed. And that's the second point. It was a regulated disbursement. You know, it wasn't just, okay, just let's throw money anywhere, everywhere. You know, but no, they, they distributed, at, it says, as any had need. And so you have this oversight you know, being exemplified by the, the apostles early on as you know, they were the leadership in, in that congregation. And so I, you see the practical aspect of that. And you see how that is, carries over when you think about the Lord's pattern for his church throughout time. You know, the oversight of, of an eldership, the idea of, of saints, you know, making collection on the first day of the week. And, that, and that, that has to be overseen by those who are given, you know, that authority to do so. And so those are some very practical things that we can draw from this exciting time that's occurring in the church at Jerusalem. Any closing things for chapter 4 before we move on to chapter 5? Okay. Just quickly to expand on one of the helpful things you started to point out. The, you started to say essentially that this changed relationship and the devotion they had to God was born out into their devotion to the brethren. Jesus said in Matthew 25, um, what you're doing to the least of these is as though you're doing it to me. So their devotion to Christ um, drives their devotion to their brethren. And First John maybe does the best job of showing that... Um, the, the inseparable nature of those two things. If you're devoted to Christ and you have the love of God abiding in you, he, he will say things like, you know that um, you've passed out of death into life. Your real conversion is shown because you love the brethren. And if you don't, then that's, that's hate. And he says in verse 17, he shows that this it has a very uh, practical side. But whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so a number of things in First John, but especially that, show um, this in action, and there are example for this. Thank you. Those are some very good uh, examples in cross-reference. And you think about that, uh, Jonathan, you know, who wrote the epistle of First John? John. John the Apostle. 
And so John the Apostle was in Jerusalem. You know, and so you think you know, years later when he's di- directed by the Holy Spirit to pen these epistles you know, from past experience and also by you know, you know, spirit elite, uh, guidance, he addresses this very important aspect of our commitment and allegiance to God and to Christ. With that said, you, know, you, know, you see introduced for us an example of a brother in Jerusalem... Uh, who is, na- is listed by name. And so Barnabas is introduced, and, so, you know, and he's introduced as someone. He's one of the many. He's not the only one. He's one of the many who sold property and brought it to the, you know, to the apostles so they would then distribute you know, those proceeds to whoever they may need. And the name Barnabas was not his original name. That was a name given to him by the apostles. His original name was Joseph, but it was given to him because you know, he was a son of encouragement. In reading, you need to see the, the connection, the flow of thought from the, those last two verses of chapter 4. When he says, now Joseph, a Levite, who was also called Barnabas, he owned a tract of land. He brought, it to the, he, he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias... You need to see the flow. What's happening here is not only is Barnabas being introduced to us to the, the, uh, and, and what his role is going to be in God's scheme of things in these early days, but he, he's using it as a contrast lesson. You've got this wonderful example of something good contrasted with an example that is bad and has severe consequences. And so you think about that idea here. You know, the idea of uh, here's the church. It's growing by leaps and bounds. And it's growing not just in number. It's growing also in this spiritual mindedness as well. And, but the thing is, with such increases, that does not eliminate what? It doesn't eliminate sin. It doesn't, it doesn't eliminate problems. And, and so, this, you know, so we should not be surprised. You know, that this was something that happened you know, in the church of Jerusalem and it happened even in its early days while it was still, in a sense, a young church. It hasn't been around that long. And, and they were all first generation Christians. Every one of them was first generation Christian and sin found its way in her membership. And that's the first 11, 11 verses of the fifth chapter. And so you have, you have Ananias and Sapphira, a couple, both Christians, who sinned by lying, who sinned by being hypocrites. And that's brought out very clearly in this text. But you think about you know, that, you know, that idea, and what the scriptures elsewhere say about that sin. For example, in Romans 12, in verse 9, it says, Let love be... What? Let love be without hypocrisy. That's not what's going on in the personal life of Ananias and Sapphira. Their love was not without hypocrisy. Two, Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this admonishment, this warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
Another uh, passage can throw in the mix. James 1, talking about temptation. Each one is tempted when? When are we each tempted? When we're carried away and enticed by what? Our own desires, our own lust. And so you think, you know, the, you know that's just kind of what's going on in, in, this, you know, in this situation, you know, for Ananias and Sapphira. Their baptism, it was real. You know, I'm confident it was genuine. You know, they called on the name of the Lord to be saved. But baptism does not remove temptation. By the power of God and the grace in Christ, faith that obeys receives the promise of forgiveness. And all of their past sins were washed away. But it didn't wash away any future temptations. And so Ananias and Sapphira were tempted. But what we need to think about this is the deaths of these two Christians were direct judgments of God. A judgment against dishonesty. Now, by the Spirit, Peter exposed the sin. Peter exposed the sin by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But God executed the judgment. And lying to God means you're also lying to who else in the Godhead? The Holy Spirit. When we lie to God, we lie to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Godhead are one, and the Spirit knows the mind of the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son know the mind of the Spirit. And so, you know, when, when they lied and tried to show their love with, through hypocrisy, you know, this deception was an affront against the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So I think you need to kind of see, see that what's going on. And secondly, once it goes in with this whole idea of, of you know, the motivation of the majority of the saints is that the selling of property to contribute to these needy saints, it, it's, it's a free will act. It's a free will act. And Peter in his uh, rebuke really brings that out. Peter basically tells Ananias, you know, it was your property. You could basically you could have done with it whatever you wanted to do, as long as it was it was godly, you know. But it was your property. It was not mandatory for you, Ananias, to sell it. And after you sold it, Ananias, you, you could have done anything with that money. It was your money. And you did not they did not have to give it. All away, didn't have to give any of it away if they chose not to do so. All was within their own rightful authority, their own rightful power to use their property, their income in a manner they wanted, you know, in accord with righteousness. But that's not what they did, was it? They sold, they gave, they lied, they were hypocrites. Can't help but be remindful of what 2 Corinthians 9 7 says. 2 Corinthians 9 7 says, where he talks about how the purpose of our giving. And we often you know, turn to this passage when talking about the first day of the, contrib- first day of the week contribution. 
And we're given some instruction about the, you know, our heart. And he said we're to give just as our heart has purposed within us. The context of, of 2 Corinthians 9 is the context of gifts from brethren being given to brethren. That's the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Very similar to, to Acts chapter 4 and 5. And so, you know, we, it, it, it is a lesson for us to, to always look in the mirror here and make the right kind of applications. But sadly, both are punished. Now, why was Sapphira punished? Yeah, she conspired with her husband. She did not die because of Ananias' sin. She died because of her own sin. And she was actually given the opportunity to tell what? She was given the opportunity to tell the truth. But she didn't. And so it's unacceptable always for a spouse you know, to, to conspire with their spouse and go along with in some wrongdoing. It doesn't matter what it is. It's always wrong to do that. You know, Sapphira should never have gone along with Ananias. But one of the questions kind of in, in your worksheet, for whom was this couple's public rebukes in death? Who was, who was the lesson really for? It was for the congregation and everybody else who heard about this sad story. Because what it teaches us in conclusion is this. You know, nothing is hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God. It's not hidden from the Father. It's not hidden from the Son. It's not hidden from the Spirit. Nothing's hidden from God, no matter what it is. Two, sin has consequences. Always there's consequences. It may not be immediate death. And most of the time it isn't immediate death. But there's always consequences with sin. And three, God knows the heart of every soul. And what He's seeking is... Hearts with pure motives. We'll end with Brother Bruce's comment. Uh, Mike's back there. Speak up loud. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. And, I, and this is an example, too, of the sin that is unforgivable that's mentioned later on in, in, mm-hmm. in the Scripture. Uh, the sin that is not forgiven, uh, that which is against the Holy Spirit, because she conspired, she and him conspired to tempt the Holy Spirit and lied to the Holy Spirit, thus blaspheming. Their hearts were that that hardened uh, to do that, and, and tempting God, uh, the Father, Son, or the Spirit is a, is an unforgivable sin because of the hearts reaching that point. Thank you very much for that thought. We'll end there. Appreciate very much your attention, your comments. You know, we'll pick up there, you know, you know, in chapter five, and, and go into chapter six, Lord willing, next week. Appreciate it.